Hello folks, I hope you didn't miss me too much over the week that I took off. My name is Maddie B, if you're new, and you're listening to yet another episode of There's Too Much to Think. Uh, Again, for those who are new, I typically do true crime cases, but as you can see by the catalog of episodes on whatever app you're listening to my voice on, I also do side tangents. For example, this month has been all about the spookiness of everything because hello, it's Halloween. I hope y'all have picked out your costumes. So, and I'm ending on the history of Halloween, where it came from, as well as uh, where many of the traditions we have today come from. So, before we get into that, let's talk about the pagan roots of Halloween. For once, the religious fanatics claiming that everything in the world is evil and pagan and therefore should not be celebrated were technically half right in this case. Now, those who have listened to my past episodes on the history of holidays such as Easter and Christmas will not be surprised that Halloween also has pagan roots. According to all of my sources, the origins of Halloween go all the way back to the ancient Irish or Celtic peoples with a festival called Samhain, which it's spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N. So it looks like it should be pronounced Salmon, or Samhan maybe, uh, but it's pronounced Samhain, which took place halfway between the fall equinox and the winter solstice at the end of the harvest season, roughly the last week of what would now be called October. This is when this festival would take place, and it would usually take place for multiple days, oftentimes the whole last week. So according to a a YouTube video done by The Hidden Passage, which is a really good YouTube video, I totally suggest you go check it out. Dude does a great job at just going detail by detail. It's amazing. Uh, I have it linked down in the show notes down below. So, um... Anyway, according to a YouTube video done by The Hidden Passage, the festival entailed going to burial mounds, as at this time it was believed that the veil between the human world and the spirit world was the thinnest. This is where they could interact with not only gods and other worldly creatures, but also their own family members that had passed on. This was a time to eat, to drink, to party with other tribes for peace, as kind of a last hurrah before going into the dark months to come. It was also believed that they would gather around a giant bonfire and throw bits of their food into the flames as an offering to the gods. If you read Percy Jackson, you know where, you know a bit of where this came from. So in fact, the word um, bonfire might actually come from the term bonefire, which was in reference to this very practice. Now, before we get too far into, like, the specifics on um, where, you know, jack-o'-lanterns came from and so on and so forth, I just want to say really quickly that um, this is just a general overview. And also, the same festival, uh, this is the same festival where mask wearing came from, as it was said that you donned a mask to let your subconscious and inner desires run free because no one knew it was you under there so you could act however you wanted. So according to an article done by the Library of Congress, this kind of morphed into full-on costume wearing 
um, as it was a way to kind of ward off the bad spirits that they wanted to keep away, um, as well, um, while this veil was thin at the time. So, without further ado, you got those two things, you got the overview of where the pagan roots come from, now I'm gonna be talking more specific about jack-o'-lanterns, why we, you know, why bats are associated with Halloween, and so on and so forth. I also, there's this one video by, um, Kaz Rowe called What Were Halloween Parties Like in the Early 1900s as well, so I'm gonna do a little side tangent about that and how, like, they celebrated it back then. So, without further ado, let's get into why jack-o'-lanterns are a thing. I should also mention that, before we get into it, that the whole idea of bats came from the fact that, at least according to the Library of Congress article that I was watching, the fact that during the bonfires it would obviously attract a lot of insects, um, which would then attract a lot of bats. Uh, So, you know, over the years it just kind of became a staple to see these animals, and so then... Halloween became a thing all about bats. So, before, let's let's move on now. So, jack-o'-lanterns. According to an article done by National Geographic, jack-o'-lanterns might have started as a way to carve the facial expressions of one's enemies into root vegetables, such as beets or potatoes, which is wild. Um, The idea of carving, however, later took on a more... uh, precedence to ward off evil spirits during Samhain. So, you know, if you were petty, you carved the the face of your enemy into a a root veggie of some kind, but during Samhain, it became more of a thing of warding off. So so you were warding off your enemy, essentially. Um, There was also a more practical use for it as well. Due to the fact that metal lanterns were expensive, many people would use these hollowed out root vegetables as their own lanterns. During the 17th and 18th century, if you didn't know a man's name in Britain, it uh, it was most common to call him Jack, aka where we get the term Jack the Ripper. So if you, you know, it's basically what today what we call like John Doe's, right? So if you saw a man carrying one of those lanterns and you didn't know who he was, he became known as Jack of the Lantern before it morphed over time to Jack O'Lantern. In the 19th and 20th centuries, with the influx of Irish immigrants coming to America, also came the traditions of Samhain, uh, because, but because pumpkins were bigger and better and grew right around the time for Halloween, the pumpkin became jack-o'-lantern. The pumpkin jack-o'-lantern quickly took over. According to that same National Geographic article I mentioned earlier, the first image of it, its storytelling um, appeared in Washington Irving's The Legend of the Sleepy Hollow with the Headless Horseman in 1858. The idea of the pumpkin jack-o'-lantern in storytelling was only propelled by other authors such as Nathaniel Hawthorne who wrote two stories mentioning these interesting decorations. However, the first actual picture of the pumpkin jack-o'-lantern did not appear until 1876 um, in an 1876 issue of Harper's Weekly. So. There you go. That's a quick old 
history of why we use pumpkins instead of root vegetables now. On to candy and candy corn. So, why we have candy and candy corn. According to an article done by the Library of Congress, the idea of giving out candy didn't start until around the 1950s when candy companies started marketing towards children and stressed out parents for inconvenience, or for convenience, because before this time, uh, gifts that were given out during trick-or-treating consisted of things like fruits, nuts, coins, and small toys. So candy companies were like, hey, what if we package individual candies and sell them in giant bags so it's just easier for the parents, all right? And so everybody just hopped on that. So when it came to candy corn, however, which... Uh, was the first person ever credited for, in my opinion, the most wax-like tasting candy in the world. I'm sorry if you enjoy candy corn. I fucking hate candy corn, like, with a passion. It gets stuck in my teeth. At one point, I had braces, and it got stuck in my braces. It was- it was a pain, and it just- it tastes like wax to me. There's no flavor, but anyway, before I ruin your favorite candy ever, um, was so the first person ever credited for was actually a candy maker in the Wonderol Candy Company in Philadelphia. Uh, he's sometimes um, that company is sometimes credited for tri- uh, the tricolored candy in the 1880s, but candy corn was not a widespread thing, so it was actually more of a delicacy, which if you think about candy corn now, and it's not your favorite food like mine, uh, you go and ask yourself why in the world it was a delicacy in the first place. But um, it became a more widespread thing for the Golitz, um, when the Golitz company brought the candy to the masses in 19 or 1898 so candy corn it was actually interestingly originally called chicken feed and was sold in boxes with the slogan something worth crowing for uh initially it was just an autumnal candy but you know with the fact because because of corn's association with harvest time however during halloween and during the whole like marketing towards candy towards children and adults during Halloween, it grew into popularity once again in the 1950s as a Halloween treat. So with that, let's get into why in the world people hate black cats during Halloween. Before you start uh, to think this is all Thackeray Binks' fault in the 1993 classic Hocus Pocus, think again and leave my guy uh, Sean Murray out of it. He may or may not have had a chokehold on me when I was little, and I think he might have been my first not-animated crush at the time. Anyway, not the point. Leave him out of it. According to an article by The Wildest, the connection between cats and Halloween goes all the way back to 2,000 plus years ago. 
Although, as most know, cats have been, um, have always had a bit of a connection with mythology through the Egyptians. Regardless, their direct connection with Halloween comes from the Druids and other Celtic tribes. It was common for women to be leaders of these tribes, as well as single. Hold on to that for later. Many festivals that these groups celebrated revolved around female lines of gods, animal spirits, and so on. During these festivals, it was common to be interested in nocturnal animals, as these festivals took place at night, and the shadowy figure of the black cat quickly became one of their favorites. When the Catholic Church came in, however, where women were supposed to be subservient to men, according to them, um, the Catholic Church quickly made these powerful uh, women and healers into witches, old hags, and evil spirits with their black cat pets as um, their familiars. And we all know what happened to witches, so... So over the years, the that's why over the years, the connection between um, witches and black cats have been so intertwined. So with that, let's get into the final part of this episode, which is what Halloween looked like in the early 1900s. According to a YouTube video done by Kaz Rowe, early 1900s Halloween parties took on a more Victorian view of the holiday rather than what it is today, which if you, you know, have ever been to a Halloween party as an adult, it's likely to get drunk and party or scare the living shit out of each other, right? Well, they had a quote-unquote much more dignified way of celebrating this holiday back then. So, a lot of the costumes as well as decorations were made by hand, oftentimes, at least for the decorations, taking materials that were already in the home or outside. A lot of the time, if you had a barn, you threw the party in the barn. Uh, People would bring in corn stalks and hay and stuff like that from outside and whatnot. Um, the view of the holiday was much more whimsical than anything. A common theme during these parties was actually fortune telling. Uh, when it came to in, in, invitations rather than word of mouth, which is usually how you get invited to a Halloween party these days, hostesses and hosts, I say hostesses because it was likely the women who had to put all this stuff together, would send out um, actual like invitation cards, oftentimes with like little drawings, which if you've seen or if you've heard of my Christmas uh, episode, you know all about the Victorian uh, style cards that people would send out. Um, Many of these little cards would often have um, two autumn colored leaves, one yellow and one red, with the directions on how to get to the party as well as the etiquette that is to be expected. So you were supposed to send back the red leaf if you as a way of like RSVPing back then, and a yellow one if you could not make it. So interestingly, 
When it came to party favors, there were uh, uh, many little trinkets and candies, including popcorn balls, noisemakers, lollipops, and other handmade crafts. There were also a variety of fortune-telling games that dealt with love at these parties. Since these parties took place around the 1910s, many of, this, many of society still had the idea of, like, if you made eye contact with someone and, like, touched their pinky, y'all were practically married. Um, and so these parties were one of the f very few that allowed men and women of, like, around the same class and societal status, um, to openly flirt, uh, and when, like, oftentimes again during this time period it was common for a young woman to have a chaperone, uh, for any, like, courting things or whatnot, so this was the one of, one of the few times that women didn't have to have a chaperone. Interestingly, many of these fortune-telling games involve apples, as apples are often seen as a sign of love and fertility. This may even go all the way back to the Bible. Um, with that, let's get into the variety of different apple fortune-telling games that would have been played at these parties. Alright, so apples anyone according to a library of congress article the idea of bobbing for apples during the holiday actually is more of a roman pagan ritual that was from for the goddess of agriculture and abundance named pomona uh, as many of these apple games were used for this was a tongue-in-cheek courting ritual for the young men and women of the time and it just kind of kept going. Uh, according to that Kaz Rowe YouTube video I mentioned earlier, there is a couple more apple-centered games, such as the game of apple pairing. Rowe quotes a book from the uh, a 1907 book call, um, about the game saying, quote, and this is on a whirling stick, by the way, quote, upon one end of this, an apple was impaled. On, upon the other stood an ignited candle. A string was attached near the apple, and the stick suspended from the ceiling, balanced so that it hung horizontally. It was then set whirling, and players, hands bound behind, would get, were given a few minutes to try and try for, for a bite out of the apple's fat cheek." End quote. To them, it sounded like fun. To me, it sounded like an utter fire hazard. But hey, what do I know? Um, if burning your cheek wasn't something you wanted to risk, you could also play another game called Snap Apple, uh, where apples were hung in the air by string from the ceiling or more likely a door frame. From there, people had to compete to see which could bite the apple first with their hands tied behind their backs. The one who wins, much like a flower toss, at a wedding would be the first to marry. And with that, that is the end of today's episode, but please stick around for the outro. All right, and with that, folks, that is the end of today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed. This is our last kind of fun episode before we get back into the regular true crime stuff. But um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed. I hope I did it justice. 
if you want to see what my sources were for this episode that I did not outwardly say out loud, you can go down to the show notes down below. Um, in the show notes, you'll notice I have socials. Uh, please go check out There's Too Much To Think Pod on Instagram. Um, if you notice also, if you're um, on Spotify, please check out the poll and the question down there because that helps a lot as well. So please share with your friends and I hope you have a very spooky and fun Halloween. Bye-bye.